0: Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. God love them, Missoulins.
1: They do two things really, really well. They're they're so good at soaking their dreads in patchouli oil and throwing shade at Bozeman.
2: I hate to say it, but he's the quintessential Southern California guy. He doesn't want to listen to anything I have to say. He's doing his own thing.
3: They're just hatchery rainbows that are bred to basically be Hunter Orange and practically glow in the dark.
1: It was as if a Red Lobster buffet had risen up to exact its revenge.
3: good morning degenerate anglers welcome to bent the fishing podcast that five out of six doctors agree is less painful than a discount tattoo removal to get rid of that chinese symbol you found out years later actually means hedgehog not lion i'm joe cermelli
1: i'm miles nolte (laughs) we we really should have paid off that sixth doctor today (laughs) we are going we're going everywhere man from from the seamounts of hawaii to the jungles of malaysia grander billfish on 130 pound test to palm size garami on inchworms we got decks drenched in blood and snakeheads savagely biting Ooh. their own young in half oh
3: do i sense a, a a like a are you going full-on horror movie because we kind of <laughs> already did that
1: no we did do that already nope 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 i don't i don't think we can uh i don't think we can top bill dance in the poltergeist ah. how are you this morning
0: hmm Doing okay. What do you look like? More purple and brown, kind of a purple look. You can keep that bait in one spot. Yes. What do you look for in a good bait casting rod when you're on a fixed income?
1: I don't know. I'm actually, I'm, I'm trying to shoehorn us here. I'm trying to move us toward a topic <laughs> that that you and I have discussed off the air, but not so much on the air, which is. You know, just general cultural attitudes uh, about the value of fish and fish lives.
2: It's okay, fish
1: don't know.
3: I'll tell you, I never liked that song for the record. Yeah. Like it's not my favorite Nirvana track. I'm also like if I'm gonna be honest, but I'm like a, I'm not a, like a huge fan of this topic, but I will I will go on this ride with you. I'm along. I'm along yep. for this
1: journey. We'll do it. I, I didn't think this was gonna be your favorite one I, I didn't I didn't I wasn't like oh Joe's gonna to want to talk about this but I do I really do appreciate your tolerance as for the song I think it's fine you know but that particular line there always kind of bugged me and mm-hmm. and it led, it led me to this thing where I blamed Cobain for fish torture in an article I wrote a couple of years ago for the com. Really? yeah yeah it was called uh, it was called ethical fish killing what about the fish because because hunters, <laughs> think and talk all the time about how an animal is harvested and its level right. of suffering, but no right. one seems to give a shit about fish.
3: Yeah, uh, no, I, that's accurate. But like, and so we understand it. It's not that I don't think this is a valid topic because, because it is right. I just always felt, cause I, I've dealt with this before. I always felt like if you analyze that too much on the fishing side, it can easily lead to a conclusion that essentially we just shouldn't go fishing ever, unless the mission is only to catch exactly what we need for the table and i mean it's like it's not very mediator of me to say but food isn't the main motivator for me you yeah. know like i i like to eat fish but it's not what makes me go and i think most people listening to this podcast would feel the same way but um
1: it's a nice I bonus I'm, I'm with you and i like to eat yeah. fish in certain don't don't get me wrong but i know it's not the reason i fish and and i i agree with your point
3: yeah and i do understand what you're saying because in, in just if we're just talking about treatment I see that shit all the time, man. Like yeah. I could give you a thousand scenarios, but like, the one that pops into my mind is the guys striper fishing on the beach. Right, you catch a bluefish, and like dudes will, I've, I, will literally kick the bluefish hard, not like a gentle nudge, like with a ballerina toe, like full boot to the head, kick a bluefish back into the water. But then, like when they catch a striper, they'll gently cradle it for the release. And I'm like, dude, that's that's hypocritical.
1: Uh, you, know? you see it, like yeah, you see it there. You see it all. In, I see it in a number of different places to be honest. Yeah. And the, the idea for the article came to me because I was ice fishing with some buddies one time and they're just like tossing their fish up on the ice mm-hmm. and just letting them flop. Right. And slowly right. die. And it, I mean, whatever, call me soft, but it bothered me. It just didn't seem necessary. I'm, I'm not talking about the killing. I don't have a problem with killing fish, but yeah. just the slow, torturous death part. So like I pulled out my blade and I started, you know, dispatching all the fish. I killed everybody's fish. And my buddies thought I was being all dramatic and so that got me thinking about this this idea of attitudes towards fish. Cause those dudes would if it was if they were talking about game, like they wouldn't have just been letting deer kind of like hobble around in the back of the truck, like, oh, yeah, I'll deal with it that. Died later. Naturally. Yeah. yeah. That's not <laughs> that's that's not a thing. And I've I've heard I've heard Steven Ranella explain this by saying that people don't care about anything that doesn't have eyelashes, which mm. I don't know, might be spot on. Um, cause we just it's weird, man. Like if you'd start digging into this topic, did you know, for example, Animal cruelty laws don't apply to fish in just about huh. every state. Like we have animal cruelty laws but they don't cover right. fish. They don't care. No.
3: I uh, no, I didn't know that, although I I'm not really surprised because fish are not cute, right? And the the eyelashes thing makes total sense, uh, but I mean it's 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 not a hard fast rule. There are exceptions. Like if you think about it, sea turtles are cute, you know? Dolphins mm. are cute. No, that's a good point. A family on vacation, like if you, you get the whole fam walking on the beach and they find a dead dolphin. <laughs> Like tears are shed, you know what I mean. Dolphin stuffed animals are later purchased and hugged to make the children feel better. But if the same family walks up on a washed up tarpon or grouper, it's just gross. Like, oh, don't touch Ew. that! Disgusting! Yeah. Ew! It's gross, right? Yeah. Because fish yep. can't be anthropomorphized the same way. A little bit here and there, like Nemo, yeah. Dory. But that's like that's not enough to change the overall perception.
1: No, you know, it didn't a, a work. Fish. That neither neither did the uh, the Sea Kittens campaign for those of you who <laughs> follow PETA's brilliance. And like, yeah, on the on the on the, the finding Nemo thing, they made two of those. The Dory sequel didn't work either. Oh yeah, right? I've like, seen them
3: all a million D times, a million D yeah, one. <laughs> Constantly.
1: But for all this, like you hear about this, like I said, PETA does their whole campaign. You hear about this in some places, but but the fishing media, like fishing folks, kind of avoid this. Because, mm. like, as you're saying, it's kind of uncomfortable. This conversation is happening, though. And I feel like we as anglers, we, we need to be up on it. We need to, like, have our answers ready. So, for example, last year I stumbled, this is a weird story, but it's true, I stumbled on this academic pissing match between camps of scientists who disagree about whether fish do or do not experience pain. There's There's a whole book titled, Do Fish Feel Pain? From 2010. And, is spoiler really? alert, Oh yeah, oh yeah. Absolutely. Like it's it's not a it's not a popular book. It's an academic, it's like a fish physiology book, but yeah, it is. And and you know, I know you're gonna run out and buy that tomorrow, but spoiler alert, <laughs> the author thinks that they do. Hmm. Right. But then like right after that came out, this other researcher published a paper titled Why Fish Don't Feel Pain, which was a, a total shot at that book and basically like the academic way of being like, Yeah, you're stupid, you're wrong. And I got sucked into this whole deep dark hole and ended up Ended up yeah. reading a lot of animal physiology journals, dude. It, it went on and on <laughs> yeah. and on, as you might imagine.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah. Cause, uh, nothing about you going on some science journal vision quest to figure out if fish feel pain surprises me, right? But uh, like, cut to the like, what's the takeaway? Cut to the chase.
1: What, there is no what? takeaway there, 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 I'm oh. sorry. there is none. I'm sorry, but like, I didn't mean to set you up to think like I have the answer because oh. no one knows the answer, right? What this comes down to is that, that pain and suffering are completely subjective experiences, right? So they're, they're, they're almost impossible to study effectively, but I will, I will leave you with one thing that I found useful. And this is, this is the thing that I, I think is, is most compelling and short if you wind up in these conversations, right? So pain researchers, and the, that is a thing, They can separate unconscious responses to pain from the pain experience, Mm -hmm. right? So for, to give you a concrete example, if you, if you accidentally put your hand down on, on a hot stove or a hot pan, right, you'll, you notice that you will jerk your hand away before you actually feel the pain. Yeah. Right. So those are two different things happening in your brain. There's the, the response to get your hand away, which is unconscious. And then like, ow, that hurt which is conscious so it's it's possible and and possibly probable depending on whose research you read that fish brains have the capacity for the unconscious response like they can jerk away from bad things Mm -hmm. but they can't actually they're not sophisticated enough to have a pain experience so that that's what i tell myself like that's my justification for like i'm okay with this
3: yeah yeah i tell myself what if it's like acupuncture what if it feels good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nobody can say that's inaccurate because nobody knows if they feel pain or not. So I'm just like, what if that was like a, like a pleasurable little, oh. a little, little jab in the mouth? And now, like, maybe he, he feels better, his whole body, anyway. Yeah,
1: just a, just a uh. release. <laughs> <laughs> it
3: it's really all sounds like a whole lot of, like, navel-gazing. Because as you said, yeah. all, all these really smart people have, have conducted all these experiments and written all these papers and books. And the fact is, we still don't know, right, what fish experience when they get caught. But you know what? We do know exactly... Exactly the level of discomfort that people experience when they're trying
1: to catch fish. We can speak to that. I know that well.
3: Yes. And on that note, uh, we're going to transition here into our Smooth Move segment, where we bring on guides and outfitters and charter captains and and get them to tell us stories about crazy shit they've seen clients do. And today, we're traveling to Miles' original homeland. Woohoo! How fun is that? To hear an offshore captain tell a story of a sport who experienced suffering and humiliation that you do not need a PhD to understand. Oh,
0: why did you do that? Why? Did why I did you do that, Terry? Oh my God!
1: In our virtual studio today, we have uh, we have one of my old friends who I have not seen in ages—at least ten years. I don't know how long it's been. Mike Tappero, oh man, what's up? It's really nice to see you.
2: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me
1: yeah dude we always get joe's friends on but now now i feel like it's my turn
2: (laughs) we won't judge you on that so yeah
1: (laughs) i just don't have that many friends let's be honest and for context for everybody out there mike and i met when we were both guiding for trout and salmon at the same lodge in alaska and uh and and we were neighbors up in what we called the guide ghetto because the the clients all slept in (laughs) in actual buildings down by the river but the guides all lived in Weatherport tents up on the top of the hill, so we didn't frighten or offend the paying customers, I assume. And, uh, man, as much of a pain in the ass as as some things were about that place, I I really miss that river, and I really miss our crew. Like We just had good folks.
2: Yeah, It it always seems to be like that. By the end of the season, you can't wait to get out of there, but it's kind of like a Stockholm Syndrome going on like once you go home you're like where's where's miles where's where's my buddies
1: yeah when we were guiding up there it was it was it was flying conventional in alaska but then then you went off on a completely different direction you went straight offshore and i don't i don't exactly remember how that happened like how did you wind up going from what we were doing off to chartering offshore boats
2: well i've kind of been into all of it from the beginning i grew up in new england fishing inshore striped bass and that sort of stuff so then And small creeks for brook trout and stuff like that. So, and then expanding to Alaska where I met you, I did that for a bunch of years. And from there went to Key West where I dipped my toes into the offshore, but it was lighter tackle, sailfish, mahis, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then wanted to expand some more. So on a whim just came out to Hawaii with one phone number as a contact. And here it's all (laughs) heavy tackle, 130 pound tackle, just dragging lures for the biggest fish you could ever imagine. So, I was going to say
3: man, you went you went right to the All-Star game like from mm-hmm. like that's minor league in Key West compared to what you're doing. I'm excited though, to have a blue water guy on. I don't get to talk to blue water guys ever. This is the first time on here. Yeah, like the first yeah, right blue right water on. dude. Yeah,
1: that's man. Cool. We want your favorite offshore smooth move. What do you got for us?
2: So, this particular day, I went to pick up my charter in the morning and it was a split charter. So it's not one group that rents the boat. It was a couple people rent their part and a couple people get matched up with them that are strangers until that morning. So I go to pick up my charter and it's a young honeymoon couple from Illinois and then a single guy from Southern California. So about as different as you could get. It's all good. Everybody meets new people. We always have fun. So we get on the boat and I'm running through my safety spiel and the fishing spiel, letting them know what they're in for. And I hate to say it, but he's the quintessential Southern California guy. He doesn't want to listen to anything I have to say. He's doing his own thing. You guys know the deal. Uh He's caught this. He's caught that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go. Let's go.
3: Oh, I know him. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we get out there. and We're fishing. (laughs) We're trolling. So we get, you know, eight, ten miles offshore and we set up and we're trolling. And doing this offshore as a charter captain, you learn to pick up on the clues of when people are starting to feel not quite right. And one of the main ones is they disappear for a long time. And I, I always <laughs> tell people one of the main things, if you're not feeling good, you do not want to go down into the head. You'll get claustrophobic. Yes. No fresh air.
1: Yep. Mm hmm.
2: So I noticed that this gentleman from Southern California has disappeared for 20 minutes. So that's a red flag there. So I I call my deckhand up onto the bridge and I, I ask him where this guy is. He said, oh, he's been in the head for a while. I said, you better go check on him. It's been a while. So he goes down in there and he promptly comes right back up to the bridge and says, yeah, he's in the head. He won't come out. I said, that's not good. You need to get him out, open the door and drag him out into the fresh air on the cockpit. He can't stay down there. So he goes down, within a couple of minutes, I'm looking down from the bridge, and I see him basically dragging, leading this gentleman out into the cockpit, into the fresh air, and he is covered with vomit and feces, from shoulder oh. to ankles. Oh. And you'd think that would be the worst <laughs> part, but this guy figured in his seasickness stupor that probably the best thing to do on a shared charter with strangers would be to take off all of his clothes also. Yes. So this, this guy is completely naked, stumbling around covered in vomit. And my deckhand sits him down in the corner and promptly gets the deck hose and starts spraying him off to (laughs) clean him, which probably made him feel better. The fresh water (laughs) probably made him feel better, but the look, on the faces of that young honeymoon couple, the shock and awe in their eyes is something that I'll never forget. So here we are on one corner of the cockpit is this young couple trying to enjoy their honeymoon in Hawaii. And then the other side of the cockpit is this naked, overweight, hairy man curled up in the fetal position. It's, it's not something that I... Like to advertise or say that this is what you'll enjoy on our trips, but it unfortunately, happens. it's the reality. Yeah, it, it, it's part of the deal. It's
3: the <laughs> and reality. It's
2: one of those one of those days that you look back on and you don't want to repeat, but you'll never forget.
3: Did that sour or 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 trigger like the the happy couples trip in any other direction? Because I mean, you got a dude covered in shit and puke like that could easily make you get sick if you were like almost there. So.
2: Luckily, it didn't. There was a huge division. So we're in a 42-foot sport fisher, and it sounds like a big boat. But when you have something like that going on, and you're on one side, yeah. and he's on the other side, it's not yeah. a very big boat. You can't get very far away. They shrink no. real but quick. But luckily, yeah. on a short trip, we caught a couple of fish. They caught a couple of mahi my mahis, and they stayed on their corner, and we had the guy covered in a towel, taking care of him, kind of out of sight, out of mind. So they had a good time. They caught a couple of fish. They were smiles when they got off the boat, and it all worked out all right for them.
3: I would have insisted on, like, mugging with a mahi with him in the frame somehow. Like, dude, can you get him in the frame laying on the deck? Like, I would have had Yeah,
2: to. it would have been funny, but is that really a picture that you want to have in perpetuity to look at?
3: Now, see that was great because that was a that was a smooth moves and a tackle hack all wrapped in one. Whether mm-hmm. people realize that or not, right? We got to laugh at, at poor SoCal sucker. <laughs> okay, uh, and for those of you who are not well versed in offshore fishing, you, here's the valuable lesson: you never go below deck if you're feeling queasy. Nope. If you like are even getting a sense that you might be getting sick, you ride it out on deck. You you stay in the fresh air. And I I I used to have a much smaller boat than Mike with a much smaller cabin. I'm not rolling around in Hawaii style boats, but for all those years I had it, if someone was like, man, I don't feel good. I want to go downstairs. I'm like, no, you are not. I Mm -hmm, I would, mm -hmm, I would mm -hmm, literally mm -hmm. put the lock on the cabin door.
1: Yep. You do not go down there. Rule number one. That is very good advice. Cause you think you want to do that, but you don't. The, the, what, what you gotta do, take deep breaths, find a point on the horizon to focus on, and just hope you don't go full on fetal. Cause there's really no coming back after, after you go there. Um, and one one other thing that you never ever 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 want to do on a boat, if you even have a tendency to get the quiz, is read. <laughs> <laughs> I am a huge proponent of reading, but you don't bring books on offshore trips. It's just a bad idea.
3: I'm I'm laughing at myself. That's no joke. So I I don't really get seasick on a boat anymore, unless it's like crazy crazy rough. It's got to be bad. But if I try and read anything, like a menu, a book. Something on my phone in just a moving car, I'll vomit.
1: Oh, yeah. And it
3: speaks to, it's really what it is. It's anything close focused on yep.
1: a boat is bad. Yep, that's why you want that horizon focus. That's why you want to look, look in the distance.
3: Exactly. I, I don't know how many people I've taken out who are totally fine until they have to, like, tie on a lure, like uh-huh. hold a lure in their face and tie it yep. on in a rocking sea, and it's just over. It's over right there. Anyway. So, save the books for when you get back to the hotel room. And as you're, you're laying there on your crappy mattress, feeling like you're still rising and falling with the swells, try not to fall over in the shower. Uh, but perhaps <laughs> enjoy the book Miles is recommending in this week's Freaking Philistines.
2: What's a Faustin?
1: It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things.
2: The long Faustin.
1: The book recommendation for this week is Jungle Blues by Stu Tripney. Stu's like the Dosa Keys guy of fishing. I guarantee his life story is more interesting than yours and mine, even though I don't actually know all that many details about him, which just kind of adds to the allure. He's a Scotsman who started winning fishing competitions at the age of nine, got into punk rock in his teens and spent a good bit of his youth driving tour vans across the UK and doing God knows what. He ran safari tours in Africa traveled the world catching the strangest and most challenging fish he could find. He somehow settled in a small town in New Zealand, opened that country's first fly shop and became the first certified master caster in a nation that's synonymous with technical trout fishing. Stu's made a name for himself as one of the most talented casting instructors and fly designers on the planet. But see nothing about Stu squares with most people's assumptions of a fly-fishing expert. He's still a punk at heart, sporting tattoos and piercings. His shop, which no longer exists, was called Stu's Orgasmic World Famous Fly Fishing Shop and had a massive side out front that simply read, Fishing is fun. Point is, Stu's our kind of guy. He loves to fish, and he's a serious angler who doesn't take anything too seriously. That attitude is on full display in his book. When he drops oh, f-, in the second sentence, you know you're in for a departure from the standard fishing tone. Reading Jungle Blues is kind of like closing the bar with an interesting and knowledgeable dude who knows how to tell a story. Best order another picture. Jungle Blues recounts a travel fishing trip, but Stu doesn't go to a famous fishery, stay in a posh lodge, and get guided. That's not his style. Instead, Stu flies to Penang, a city in northwest Malaysia, because, well, he decided his house might be conspiring to kill him after he burned his bare ass cheeks on the new fireplace. The South Island winter felt a bit too long and dreary, and his most recent attempts at small-town tinder proved disappointing. So he heads to Malaysia to meet up with an old friend and fishing buddy who's in the process of starting up a sport fishing business in the heart of the country. From the start, nothing goes to plan. Stu's buddy, Paul, gets sidetracked, stranding Stu in Penang for a few days. With unexpected time on his hands, Stu decides to buy himself a little discount corrective eye surgery. The results are just about exactly what you expect. He also manages some severe food poisoning before finally getting out of the city with a twisted gut and a busted, bleary, and leaky eye. After meeting with Paul... Stu gets on to the ostensible purpose of the trip. Fishing for Giant Snakehead on Lake Temengor. This book is not great literature. Don't expect polished phrasings, potent metaphors, or soaring prose. This is just a damn good story told by a compelling person. I don't want to give too much away, but Stu spends many weeks exploring the lake, living out of an aluminum boat in a sweltering jungle with just a few tarps, a hammock, some basic supplies, and a few fishing rods. Stu runs that derelict boat around a completely unfamiliar reservoir where a minefield of sunken stumps hide just under the surface and threaten to rip off the lower unit. Since this lake isn't yet an established sport fishery, Stu spends much of his time looking for fish and works through many fishless days. Nothing about the trip sounds comfortable or glamorous. He spends every night in a hammock or on bare ground eats nothing but canned food, and absorbs severe sunburn and constellations of insect bites, in addition to his busted eye. But for all the discomfort, Stu's trip is rich and fascinating. He learns how to find and target giant snakehead by searching for the schools of juveniles that swim near the surface and are accompanied by their full-grown parents. He also discovers that while protective, Those parents can't resist their predatory nature if one of their young winds up struggling on the end of a fishing line. He learns the habits of monkeys and watches Asian elephants frolic. More than anything, though, Stu offers an understated primer on how to embark on a fishing adventure instead of a fishing trip. The cliche about valuing the journey over the outcome usually strikes me as a a justification when someone falls short of their actual goal. Not the case here. Stu catches the big snakehead he's after, but that's not the climax of the story. The climax, if there is one, is the slow build of relative comfort and familiarity that Stu achieves with an unfamiliar and somewhat uninviting place. Perhaps the best part about this book is that Stu doesn't need to make himself the hero or the expert. He's comfortable just being who he is. Here's a taste. Imagine it in a a Scottish accent. In random remote areas around the island, Paul would find enough signal, though never a particularly strong one, to do his emails and stories. He was tethered to the internet, and this became a common theme during our trip. He'd stay where he could find signal, and I'd go off in a different direction on my own. This was fine, as we're both lone wolf fishermen anyway. We'd catch up once or twice during the week to talk shit around the campfire and share a few beers. For me, it was the perfect setup for discovery, adventure, and fishing we had two boats loaded up to last four to seven days at a stretch. Paul's boat was well set up for its size, and mine was a similar four-meter aluminum boat, though not as well set up. Both vessels had been spray-painted in Paul's version of camouflage chic, as he was convinced this looked cooler and was less likely to scare away fish than reflective aluminum. Paul gave me a quick rundown of what was and wasn't on the boat and how the engine worked. He was very relaxed about it all. You'll figure it out. He kept saying, F- hope so,' I thought to myself, though I was also glad that he wasn't trying to babysit me. I was excited to get on and do things for myself. We stopped on a small island with steep banks and long grass. Paul eased his boat between the tree stumps and onto the shoreline. I cruised in behind him, more slowly and warily, and eased my boat alongside his. I jumped out with my rope, but as I did so, the boat shot forward and the nose dipped downward hitting Paul's electric trolley motor and snapping the propeller in half. I was mortified. Here I was, on our first boat journey, using equipment that Paul had kindly loaned me, and within the hour, I'd f*** his electric outboard. It was not a good start. I did my best to console Paul. I plied him with beer and let him know that I would pay to get it fixed right away. He was pretty calm as he knew it was an accident, and here in the jungle, well, what can you do? At least the main outboard still worked. You have to just learn to deal with it, he said. It is what it is. Was. And at least nobody died.
3: How are you going to take the Snakehead book? Oh, come Come on. on. I'm the Snakehead guy. We got a, a travel book about snakehead fishing. And you didn't pass it on to me. Weren't you supposed you were supposed to send me a copy of this book? So that's like double insult. You're like, I got this great book, and you'd love it for and then you don't send the book, and then you do a segment on the book.
1: Yeah. I and I, I was supposed to do that. That's true. Uh your copy's sitting right here in my office. I can see mm-hmm. it. And I do feel a little bad, but only a little, because yeah, okay, <laughs> you got the line on snakeheads. You're the snakehead guy. But I actually got drunk with stew. The guy mm. who wrote that book one time in Florida. Mm. So I'm—I have as much right to claim that book as you do.
3: Yeah, you'll, you'll end up doing like a striper book next. Yeah, right?
1: I, maybe <laughs> I will. Maybe I will. But I won't if you get off your ass and beat me to it. You can do Philistines anytime you want, man. I'm not stopping you.
3: Yeah, but in this case, you did stop me. <laughs> you failed to send me the book, which is stopping me. Right? Never mind. Never mind that I can't actually really find any time to read anymore like I used to. Also, never mind that the trout magnets, I promise you, arrived at your residence.
1: Oh, I knew you, you were going to that up. I knew you were going to do that. All right. Whatever. You're a better person. <laughs> Fair enough. That's fine. Uh, but getting off of this topic, because I'm clearly losing this, and, and back onto the topic uh, that we were talking about with cultural attitudes about fish and, and books, mm. do you know the classic children's book, The Tawny Scrawny Lion?
3: Mm, no, I cannot say I've ever heard of that. All right. All
1: right. Quick overview, because you got to kind of know it. It's about a lion who eats all the animals in the jungle every day, but no matter how much he eats, he's never satisfied. And this book is just god-awfully inaccurate and deeply messed up for a lot of reasons. First, lions don't live in jungles. Second, there's a whole thing about the lion eating kangaroos and, you know, wrong continent, but mm. factual errors aside, the whole it's message Pangea, of this dude. book. Maybe it was taking place during the time
3: of Pangea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh god, but the, the the over the the message, right? The message from this kids book is about how the lion shouldn't be eating animals and uh-huh. and in fact the lion only finds happiness and satisfaction when he stops eating all the animals and switches over to a diet of pure carrot stew, which he gets his <laughs> which he gets from his new friend, the rabbit. The rabbit teaches him a different way of being that centers around eating only carrot stew and being friends with all the animals that he used to eat. All the animals except for the fish, which the rabbit catches and puts in the magical carrot stew. And again, there's so much wrong with this story in terms of what we're teaching kids about, like, natural systems and predator-prey relationships and what rabbits and lions actually do and don't eat. But I, I have to admit, like, the thing that stuck out with me was its attitude toward the fish, right? The whole the whole thing in this book that's telling kids is 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 eating animals is bad, but eating fish, totally cool. Totally fine.
3: Huh. <laughs> All right. But then we talk about Nemo, then you have those Nemo sharks with that whole fish or friends, not food deal. Remember yeah, that? I do. Which left me wondering, then what do they eat? Do they only eat humans? They never answered humans? that question. I know. Do they only eat humans and scuba divers and rip people off boats and eat birds and shit? Because then that'd be, that would be kind of painting sharks in a bad light to the children. Yeah. Anyway, why there are, are problems, you asking me? <laughs> why are you asking me about this book? Like, where is this coming from?
1: Uh, I, my my mom was reading it to my son over the computer the other day, and I just i it it really bugged me, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. So, well, I we should I'd...
3: have her on and ask her what it means to her, like reading Rainbow. Like, what did she? What is what is the <laughs> message she gets out of this? Anyway, maybe uh, maybe your uh, preoccupation with this will play into my favor this week uh, because maybe you've just been too distracted to follow up on the headlines and bring your A game in this week's fish news. Fish news. That escalated quickly. Okay, so very quickly, I'm sure we all remember the finger lures that we covered in sale Bin not long ago. I know mm-hmm. you haven't forgotten the I, ones you know, I the haven't. ones you insisted are fake they and are. that I insist are real, and we'll need to do an investigation in subsequent <laughs> Netflix docu series. <laughs> uh, so this is so we we posted the photo of those finger lures on our Instagram accounts, and man. Did some people weigh in? Furthermore, a bunch of you have have seemingly done some sleuthing because we've gotten several links to other fake silicone fingers. Yep. For sale on online classified sites.
1: Apparently, they're used for people learning to do nail work. I didn't know that. Like that's is that that's what the market. Is? Yeah, I, that's I the market silicone that I just for silicone like,
3: oh, fingers for people these who are, are
1: going to work in a nail stuff. salon. Anyway.
3: <laughs> Fair enough, weird, but here's weird the weird
1: finger stuff. <laughs>
3: But here's the thing, regardless, right? As far as I'm concerned, ain't none of them look as real or as good as the ones in the finger lore post. Like, none of them struck me as that realistic. And I feel the need to just relay this comment from Vince Stone, who is... Vince has been following me for years. And Vince is a mortician by trade. And this is what he he wrote to me. He says, as your favorite mortician, which he is... (laughs) um, I can confirm that those are the realest replication of severed fingers I have ever seen. There are details on those fingers you just won't know unless you've seen them in real life. Bang! Plot thickens <laughs> from a real life mortician. Thank you, Vince. That's all I've got on that. But I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm backing myself
1: up. Yeah, fair. I, I'll say Vince is <laughs> Vince is really gonna like one of my my stories this week. Oh. Uh, I'm I'm a little foreshadowing there but Vince listen up cuz I think you're going to dig it. Uh I I'm not going to call anybody out by name but a lot of you have responded to the Big Mouth Buffalo fan clips oh, yeah. we did. Uh and I appreciate all that and and looks like some people have figured out some ways to catch them but but nobody seems mm. to have fully cracked the code so I'm I'm sticking by that being like the next big super fun sport fish to figure out. Anyway, <laughs> let's jump into uh let's jump into the news. As always, this is a competition. Joe and I have no idea what exactly the other one is going to bring to the table. We just know that we want to vanquish one another into oblivion. And the man who holds the key to that deciding factor, the decider himself, our engineer, Phil. Phil. All right, man. It's your your week.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I do. I I get to lead off here. Man, you've already like... You've already hinted that you're excited about uh, one of your stories, so I'm nervous here. But anyway, we'll uh, we'll start here. And while this is kind of a, a foreign notion uh, to you, and that's a good thing, out here on the East Coast, we are creeping in on trout season and opening days of trout season in many states. In fact, I've themed both of my news stories around stocker trout. So I've been I've
1: been hitting the trout season. By the way, that's yeah, I know, but you're just like
3: allowed to. It's not because there weren't any there last (laughs) Tuesday until they came with the truck, it's just a different thing. Uh, and some states have already opened out here, I believe. And, um, while people that live in serious wild trout territory like you don't maybe fully get this rush to get out and beat on these tank raised trout, for better or worse, right? This is a big cultural thing here, you know what I mean? Like, my entire life, opening day was the jam. I actually had an easier time falling asleep on Christmas Eve than the night before opening day Trout when I was little. And uh, th- I mean, I retired from opening days many years ago, but I'm thinking this might be the season I dust off the chain stringer because my kids are like right about at the right age. So, You know, anyone planning to fish Amwell Lake on opening day in Jersey, I'll be there dominating, and I apologize (laughs) for that. Uh, But anyway, within these completely manufactured fisheries, right, there are are three goals. One is to limit out, and that's the easiest goal. Two is to catch the breeder. Like, you want to be the guy in the parking lot with the queen pellet head on your chain stringer jangling, right? Um, And then three is to stick a golden trout Otherwise known as a palomino. I was going to say
1: that's not a golden trout. That's a palomino trout. There's there's a difference. I'm not trying we, to be a dick, but those, no, those, those no, are no. different. No,
3: no, You're right. Scientifically speaking, you you are correct. But they both terms are acceptable here. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know, like the ones I'm talking about, they're just hatchery rainbows that are bred to basically be hunter orange and practically glow in the dark, right? So catching a Palomino, it's somewhat of a rite of passage. So needless to say, when the state of West Virginia canceled its annual gold rush last spring due to COVID, people were extremely upset, right? Mm -hmm. And according to the story I found on uh, WestVirginiaMetroNews.com, the annual gold rush is such a draw in West Virginia, the state feared that the crowding it's known to cause on lakes and streams could become like super spreader events, that's how many people are down on the gold rush. So they nixed it. And, and so you understand, many states stock Palominos, but they're just kind of, they're like, you know, they're just like scattered in the mix, which is why in Pennsylvania, as an example, they're often prized because there might be one in an entire, you know, long stretch of stock stream. And everybody will be crowded around the hole it's in because you can see the damn thing, right? So it's like, <laughs> who's going to get that one out of the hole? But West Virginia, raised 50,000 golden rainbows this year for the much-anticipated gold rush, and they'll be planted in 62 bodies of water, both lakes and streams. For comparison, Pennsylvania will be stocking a mere 13,000 golden statewide this year. So West Virginia, I've I've learned from this, may be like the most golden trout-slash-Palomino-obsessed state um, because what they do is they dump all these fish in the same week. So unlike other states mm. where the palominos are mixed in with the regular stock dates this is a a a gold trail it's more of a gold blitz dump, then it's a gold dump it's a gold dump it's a gold blitz if you will so here's a quote from the story we start getting calls around october asking if we have made plans for next year's gold rush there are people all over the country who make vacation plans around the gold rush," said Jim Hedrick, hatchery systems manager for the West Virginia Division of Natural Resources. So, in the past, I guess there have been some prizes involved for tag fish and such, but this year the state is going bigger and better than ever. Per the story, the agency has also created some additional suspense around the fish this year. Catch a tag trout, and you could win a three-night cabin stay at Blackwater Falls State Park, a one-night cabin stay at a state park or forest, a West Virginia State Parks gift card or exclusive gold rush merchandise. Right. And so here's here's my opinion. Anything that gets people excited to get out and fish, cool. I'm all about it. I personally have never really understood the appeal of these fish. Like I never, I never got it. And I, I mean, if you ask me, like what they're good for is letting you know where other trout are. You
1: know what I mean? It's right. like, oh,
3: there's a palomino. So there must be 10 more trout around. It
1: Take, but takes I've, the term indicator species to a totally different level.
3: Oh, spot on. But I, I find them like kind of gross and often dumb. And like people post pictures of them on a grill and it's just like, uh, it's like the Ugh. koi. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they're still bright orange after you've sprinkled them with Mrs. Dash and put them <laughs> on the Weber, you know. However, that said, I, I will admit that while I don't ever seek them out, if I stumble on the one by accident and there's nobody around, like you just can't help it because it's like a oh, I can see that magnet. Yeah. Like it's a magnet. And, like, what I refuse to do, like I said, is stand around a hole with 10 other dudes and, like, bombard one. But a mutual buddy of ours, Tim Romano and I, we were floating in a local creek near my house a few years ago, late season, like, for smallmouth. And all of a sudden, we spot this big golden in a run far away from a stock point. And we sat there for, like, an hour trying to catch it. Like, you just can't <laughs> help it. And it, it happened to me this past summer, same thing, late day, super slow, nothing happened except for this one giant friggin' golden trout and um we sat there for an hour changing flies and like you see everything that happened so it's like oh he moved oh oh man turned off of it you know what i mean and it you just like you you get glued to it so little, that's like a uh, no no uh. so i i find uh here's a palomino tip for all you palomino hungry people it's like you got to crack him right away because he'll chase for a while but usually like they're aggressive if you like as soon as you throw a spinner or stick bait or whatever uh or even drift a worm but like they they get wise quick they're they are kind of aware i mean every hawk and heron in the planet it's just like very oh, there, yeah. there he is so you know i don't know man i kind of feel like i want to go to the gold rush like it's a thing like even though i don't care about palominos i'm interested in the west virginia gold rush
1: i uh, all right i've i've a couple things number 1 I don't feel like that was a great use of um, agency money. Cause it sounds like the gold <laughs> rush is already such a thing. Like, why are you incentivizing that even for, it, it seems to be like, if you're going to spend that money, spend it on getting people excited about like the catfish that nobody wants or. yeah, Or,
3: or the new river, smallmouth. Or yeah, or yeah. I whatever. mean, like, yeah.
1: It, I, I don't, I don't think that's the best use of resources. Cause I don't think you're going to need to incentivize people to go after them from what you're describing, but more, more to the point. I just sort of feel bad for these fish, man. Like, first of all, they're they're <laughs> they're raised in this hatchery laboratory setting to be this creepy weird color and and so they live most of their life in a raceway or a, a hatchery pond which can't be that great. And then they get dropped somewhere and they they just have to live in fear because they're either being bombarded by by anglers or uh-huh. attacked by predators. It seems like a terrible life is what I'm saying.
3: It, you know, it it is it is probably a terrible life, but it's like out here, man, like you will take our golden trout out of our our cold dead hands. Like, I'm don't not, you mess I'm not, with our golden that's trout? That's <laughs> not what I'm saying. I'm just, I'm just.
1: Well, I, I'm really saying that because that sets me up to talk about my next story, which is what I'm oh, going to do, which has to do with with you know potentially feeling feeling bad for fish. Uh, so just so you know that that whole thing was all about me and getting to talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> good, and Any, it also needed
3: help with your segue. It anything. also
1: fits with the theme of the show, right? That we've been talking about, which is you know feeling bad for fish, fish welfare, all that stuff. So I recently read a Vox article titled The Next Frontier for Animal Welfare, fish. And in reading the article, I found out about a relatively new nonprofit called the Fish Welfare Initiative. Now, considering the source article where I found this group, and their name. I was like, oh, no, here we go with the sea kittens again. God damn it. But <laughs> and hold on. Actually, you know what? Wait, before I keep going, I think that's the second time we've referenced sea kittens on this show. And and I feel like we got to explain that. So for those who have no clue what we're talking about, some years ago, PETA, uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, put out this whole anti-fishing media campaign that tried yeah. to get everyone to stop calling fish, fish. And start calling them sea kittens.
3: Was Be- that the same campaign with the comic book called "Your Dad's an Asshole" or whatever it was?
1: <laughs> I don't. Your know. dad
3: is a murdering Your dad's asshole. A, murderer, a comic yeah. book by PETA. I should have kept it. I had it, and I, I I tossed it.
1: I mean, it was like like they really thought that just this like simple rebranding exercise would you know convince the world to completely change global commerce and food supply and. Destroy the recreational fishing industry just because they made a comic well, it, and, and it, as we've also fish.
3: said it it, it worked in the opposite way for Chilean sea bass. Yeah, PETA. see yeah. they changed their name and they're all dead. So <laughs> careful what you wish for.
1: And and shockingly, the sea kittens campaign it it never really took hold. It's kind of it also. Have you seen their more recent one? Their most recent PR campaign to to no. and this is a quote: "Remove speciesism from our daily conversations." By uh, and the way they're doing this by replacing idioms like kill two birds with one stone with Mm. feed two birds with one scone or (laughs) bigger fish to fry becomes bigger fish to free. Oh Oh, man. I, I, I try, I try to at least be respectful when I see people working toward goals. They genuinely believe that are right. Even if I totally disagree with them, but Dude, PETA just, it's, they're just such an easy target. I can't help myself. I,
3: I know, and I, I don't want to get off. Remember when they made those photo frames for social media? Like PETA put out those, like you'd frame a picture of an animal you loved and put this auto PETA frame on it, and everybody thought it was funny to just put their dead deer and <laughs> bears and stuff yeah. in that frame. Yeah, exactly. But in my opinion, I'm like, don't do that, because yeah. I know you're trying to be funny, but you're just still no. calling you're, attention yeah, to them. Yeah, yeah. Like, terrible
1: move. It's true. Anyway. You know? Back yeah. back to the back to the this is not a PETA story, back to the Fish Welfare Initiative, which is also known as FWI. And like I said, I thought they were gonna be going the PETA route when I first read about them. I was like, oh God. But their mission is much more practical, which makes them harder for me to dismiss. As opposed to PETA, whose arguments are just like purely anthropomorphic and are purely just just appealing to emotion. There's no logic there. FWI focuses on sound research and, and rational perspectives. Their stated mission also has absolutely nothing to do with fishing. So FWI okay. wants to change fish farming. Fish are the most farmed vertebrates in the world. Up to 180 billion fish are being raised at any given time. And that number is growing. But fish farms have lots of issues that we've, we've, we've talked about on this program before. Like we, we yeah. are not huge fans. They, they pollute ecosystems, uh, harm populations of wild fish in a bunch of different ways allow non-native species to get into places. They're not supposed to be feeding farmed fish requires harvesting huge amounts of wild fish and pulling them out. And 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 way back a few months ago, I I did a story on loser fish, which is the actual oh, yeah. industry term for the 25% of farm fish that give up on life and stop eating and never make it to harvestable size. Point being, current fish farming practices are are problematic. I totally agree there. Now, the fish welfare initiative realizes that aquaculture is the fastest-growing food sector worldwide, and their goal is to help fish farmers shift their practices in ways that will make fish farms more efficient and less harmful. So far, I'm totally on board. They're currently partnering with fish farms in India, and they're looking to expand to China and the Philippines to make these farms more productive, more profitable, and, and, and less detrimental to ecosystems and wild fish. Again, totally with that. Right? But while they lead their conversations talking about increased profits, fish quality, and sustainability, the core of their mission is all about improving living conditions for farm fish. As I read through their materials, I find myself simultaneously like nodding along, being like, "Yeah, totally agree with you. And then stepping back and wondering like wait, am i am I just opening up my mental gates to to a Trojan horse? I'm not opposed to fish welfare. Like I said at the top of the show, I'm I'm that guy that puts other people's fish out of their misery when they're flopping on the ice or in the deck of a boat. Yeah. yeah. One of the many reasons I hunt is to avoid supporting factory farms too much. I, I got no issue with eating animals, but I, I don't like eating animals that never really lived. I think industrial chicken farming is nasty and industrial fish farming isn't much different. It's very, very similar. That's that's accurate. Yeah. So I'm totally in favor of changing the way that those practices are done. So why does this group make me nervous? Like, why do I find myself struggling to trust this initiative and fully get on board? Because even though they don't mention fishing anywhere on their website or the articles and reports I read, I can't help but think that an organization called the Fish Welfare Initiative isn't so hot on fishing for fun and sport. Their stated mission is, quote, to improve the welfare of fish as much as possible. They also state on their website that quote fish are sentient beings capable of feeling pain as much as terrestrially farmed animals on that point. I just absolutely disagree or I, whatever I choose to disagree because I've read the research. I even interviewed one of the leading experts on fish pain experience. And I'm, I'm just not convinced that fish pain is the same as sentient being pain. I'm not convinced, or I choose not to be convinced, whatever, however you want to look at it. That said, I still think fish farming is is problematic. And I, I don't like the idea of fish living their entire lives in overcrowded confinement, stewing in each other's waste. I Also, I understand that aquaculture is going to be more and more important for feeding and growing global population, especially if we want to take some of the pressure off wild fish stocks. And mm-hmm. and I would like to see that farming done in ways that are more efficient, more more profitable, produce higher quality meat, create less waste, don't screw up ecosystems. And yeah, sure. If that's less terrible for the fish, I'm on board with that too. Like I, 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 they kind of check all the boxes, but I wonder like, can we ever really be friends? Like now can an organization like the, the fish welfare initiative ever see anglers as partners? M- almost all of our stated goals are the same. I want them to succeed, but not if it means that we we have to agree that fish are sentient beings and that fishing is therefore barbaric and cruel it's this weird thing where like i'm with them all the way up to a point and yet i think when push comes to shove we're going to fight
3: you you can't call fish sentient beings and then be okay with recreational angling so let's just assume that we would not be friends i, I, I don't i don't I see that it's, you know, it's a tough thing, man, and I might sound like a little jerky here, but, you know, if you look at it from all sides, it's like, you and I aren't really huge on fish farming in the sense of, like, we don't really buy farmed fish. I don't no. eat farmery salmon, and and all that stuff. But can you have it both ways? Like, fish farms are existing because there's a demand for more fish, and... I mean, that is hypothetically taking strain off wild fisheries in certain places. But now this group is like, but yeah, but those fish aren't happy. Right. I mean, that's mm-hmm. basically what they're saying is like the fish, like, so but like, if you go down their bullet
1: we- point list, like that's the bottom of the, the list. It's all like profit, sustainability, efficiency, workers' rights. Like they hit all these other things. I'm like, yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. And you get to the bottom, like, and the fish are sad. And I'm like, well, yeah, I care about that too, but not as much as those other things. Yeah,
3: I man, I am I'm, I'm sort of like at a loss for what to say on that one. I mean, I'm all about, you know, efficiency, right? I don't I don't like waste in in any farming. You don't you don't you don't really want to know or talk about like how much chicken or fish or whatever it might be is 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 wasted. Is it awful to say like I I don't feel sad for farm. Fi- I don't feel sad for fish. I am very respectful of fish that I catch. I don't want to harm fish, right? Unless I'm taking them to eat them. If I am, I'm going to dispatch them humanely. But like, I can't. I can't look at them like the sad turkeys in the <laughs> the Purdue video. I just can't. It's a fish, yeah. and and yep. and and with with the pain thing. Look, for better or worse, that's a huge debate. I am. I am pretty much on your side, but like, you can't hear a fish, you know, like a dog, you know, you step on the dog's tail, dog lets you know, like, you yeah. can't, so they, like don't what are, what are we, they don't vocalize. So, you know, what's, it's like, there's just, there's just no winning with these people Sometimes We want to save wild salmon. That's good. So we have salmon farms. Okay. They have their issues, but they are serving a purpose and a demand, but those fish are sad. Like, like, holy shit. I'm sorry, I'm going nowhere here. I'm just like stream of consciousness and spouting off. But this is just what's coming into really in my head. I didn't really set
1: you up to, to have a lot to say there. I just I found that to be first, it fit the theme of the show, and two, like this is a new initiative that's coming, and I think it's something that we as anglers are going to contend with. And it found I, I was interested because I agreed with so many of their points until that last one. It. I'm like, I don't think we're actually friends. I just I don't. get it,
3: and 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 we're not, and we're not going to be friends. And at some point, these people will will come up again. I'm sure.
0: The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where Land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over six thousand captains and trips to choose from planning your next one just got a whole lot easier download the fishing booker app on the google play or app store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today If they're upset about the well-being of
3: fish, I don't know. Who worries about the well-being of bugs? Because they're going to take issue with my last story. (laughs) Who are the bug people? All right? I'm just letting you know right now, okay? I don't need to hear it. I don't need your bug comic book, uh, you know, anti-butterfly nets or whatever. And this is not really news anyway, but I flagged it because when I read it, I was struck with the notion that you can, in fact, teach old dogs— new tricks. And it also fits, like I said, with my stalker trout theme. Uh, plus, I learned something I never knew. And I'm curious after after everybody hears this to see if anyone writes in and goes, yeah, dude, this is legit. And I've been doing this for years, okay? Um, anyway, there, there's always just a bunch of sort of spring-related nature stuff in the news this time of year, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like the crocuses yep. are blooming in Central Park or- Get out and look at the grass, Chicago. You know, like all that junk, right? <laughs> so, well, so this this is similar vein. This little story comes from the Citizen's Voice, which appears to cover Northeast Pennsylvania, and it's all about goldenrod and more specifically the goldenrod gall fly. Okay, so goldenrod, extremely common, grows coast to coast, and wherever it grows, um, it gets these these gall flies. And the main photo in the article. Uh, is a stalk of goldenrod with an almost perfectly round, like ping pong ball sized knot right in the middle of the stalk. And when you, you see this photo, many of you like me, you'll probably be like, oh yeah, like I recognize that. I've seen those knots a million times walking around out in the woods and along the streams. And of course, I never gave them much thought. And But the knot or gall, which is what it's really called and how the fly gets its name, it's the same color as the stalk and it looks like just a seed pot or something. You just assume it was part of the plant. But inside each one of these galls, these knots, is a single, plump, fat, juicy little grub, right? So these gall flies hatch in the spring, uh, but right now, at least in the northeast, they should still be in grub form. And because the goldenrod isn't in bloom and all the undergrowth hasn't come in, these knots uh, and, or galls are much easier to spot right now. And according to the author, I, I Craig I hope Morgan, I know where you're
1: going with this. I really hope you're going where— I think you are. I, I I don't know. I Now I'm nervous that
3: I'm not going there, and you'll be disappointed. Craig, according, anyway, according to the author, Craig Morgan, those gall fly grubs are like exceptional trout bait and yes. panfish bait. Yes. Like premium, premium, high-quality shit here, man. And this bait supply is free. And easy, easier to collect even than than digging worms or looking for grubs like in old wood and stuff. And he says, you know, you go clip off a couple dozen of these galls, just put the whole gall in the largest pocket of your fishing vest, and then you just use your pocket knife to slice them open as needed. And like inside each one is just like a perfect, delicious, juicy trout bait. You you gotta go do this. Yeah, I, I I I am going to go do this. Okay, right before I head to the the gold rush. Yeah. Okay, but he says he does note: be careful because these galls can be kind of hard. So like, cut them open carefully. Don't like, you know, let your knife slip. Um, and not only did I find this pertinent, like I said, with trout season about to open, but for me it was like, who knew? Yeah. I have seen there's so much goldenrod around here, especially along a lot of the streams I fish in North Jersey and PA. And like, you just look at this, and it just looks like a like a nasty weed pod seed thing and you're like holy shit so all these years of, of trudging along these streams like there was an endless supply of, of awesome trout bait there I never knew existed Um and then you know the competitive world of opening days uh, you know you want the leg up Yeah, you know? hell yeah. guaranteed you'll be the weapon. only one in the hole on opening morning with something better than your special blended power bait so I am very curious this is one of those things that somebody listening has to have been doing this and is either like Oh, shit! Or shut up, I, shut up! I can't wait to try it. Yeah. I can't wait to try it. So it's just this little nature thing. It certainly wasn't focused on fishing by any means. But like, look at this little nugget which I have now
1: shared. That's great. So you have you have gold rod. That's great. For when we your do. I'm going to be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're later. We're, our, our season's later in the year, so it's not up yet. You'll I have them be, later. I yeah. will be on the lookout for that for sure. Yes. Um, the only segue transition I can think of. <laughs> is that I'm going to talk about something that I really hope nobody wants to use for bait. I really hope. So my next story comes from National Geographic. And uh, like you alluded to earlier, after the response we got from the severed fingers lure segment, I I just, I had to run with this. It is, it is kind of a stretch for fish news, but I think, I think I found a way to justify it at the end. We'll, we'll see if, if you agree. In the Pacific Northwest, between Vancouver Island and the mainland, is this body of water called the Salish Sea. And and down at the southern end of it is where you find Puget Sound. Yep. Since 2007, at least 20 human feet have been found washed up on beaches and rocks in this small area. Oh, I love it. I love this. They are (laughs) never found in pairs, always individually, though sometimes a matching foot will wash up later on a different beach. And the feet are always found encased in shoes, generally sneakers. In 2008, Ooh. five different disembodied feet were discovered. Local media were were all over the mysterious feet beat, as you might imagine. And, uh, and people started freaking out, right? Like rumors of a serial killer started circulating. Yeah, he's uh, in Wisconsin.
3: And- he doesn't need the feet. <laughs>
1: The the police tip lines were just lighting up with all these assertions like about deranged murderers and sunken shipping containers full of migrants, uh, some warnings of an impending alien invasion. And of of course, of course, the the well-meaning psychics that were constantly calling and offering their services, right? As always happens. Ultimately, though, it wasn't law enforcement who eventually did figure this mystery out, but forensic pathologists and oceanographic researchers. See, when bodies end up in the water, they usually sink. They might float at first, but they they usually sink. And in cold water, like off the coast of the Pacific Northwest, they don't decay or bloat. They just kind of sit down there. And and in certain circumstances, bodies can last for centuries if undisturbed in cold, low-oxygen water. But that doesn't happen in the Salish Sea. Instead, any organic tissue, dead humans included, is quickly set upon by a mob of scavengers like shrimp, lobsters, and crabs. And this is where I just, I've got to quote the article. Like, this is the best line from National Geographic. I, I have to quote it directly. So here it is. It was as if a red lobster buffet had risen up to exact its revenge. <laughs> and, and props to Erica Engelhaupt for some solid wordsmithing there because I that was, that was very well done. Anyway, the, the sea creatures feast on the remains and they start with the soft bits. Ankles happen to be very soft connective tissue, so feet will quickly become disarticulated from the rest of the body. And modern sneakers, such as the ones we've been using for about the past 20 years, are very buoyant, right? Huh. Yeah. And in all but one of the washed-up feet... That was the case. They were in modern, buoyant sneakers. So it makes sense that bodies lost at sea would lose their feet if they were wearing sneakers and that those feet would drift away. But that doesn't explain why they keep showing up in this one localized area. That mystery was solved by a researcher who created a computer simulation and the point of it initially was to predict what would happen in the event of an oil spill near Seattle. And his model shows that just about anything set adrift in that area will flow straight into the Sailor Sea.
3: Yep, yep. It's all current. And it's all about currents. exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you add into that the fact that the Pacific Northwest has lots of people wearing sneakers and hiking around the rocks, and you get this logical answer for why the area ch- attracts all these disembodied sneaker-clad feet. Creepy. None of these feet, none of the feet found has ever been connected to foul play. It's all natural causes, but they keep going to that same place. But they find the real people.
3: they like, they've connected, like they, they figure out whose feet they are.
1: Not all. They haven't, they have not identified all of them, but they've identified a lot of them. The majority gotcha. of them have been identified. It took a long time. Some of them are decades old, but yeah, they found them. And it's possible that some people out there, maybe even you, Joe, are, are currently wondering why this, this counts as fish news. And I have answers first. Several of the feet belong to anglers who were thought to have slipped off the rocks and drowned. So this is a cautionary tale, right? If you're shore casting, be careful. Right. Bad right. things can happen. I'm not saying don't go do it. Just be <laughs> smart. <laughs> Second, a lot of the feet were found by fishermen, which again, not surprising, right? Who's sure. down on the rocks, getting to the places where things wash up that aren't always seen going to, going to be, going to be anglers. But the final reason, and my personal favorite one is, is, Like, I'm talking to all the shellfish lovers out there, myself included, and I just want us to recognize that (laughs) given the chance, those shrimp, crabs, and lobsters would gladly eat you and your whole family, all right? And whether that makes you feel better or worse about dumping them live into a pot of steaming water is totally up to you, but know that they would have no qualms about it.
3: Love this. I don't care why it's connected to fishing. I was like, I don't care how he connects this. I just absolutely love this. And it it brings up a few things. For one, okay, as a Northeast surf fishing guy, anybody fishing rocks anywhere, even if it's in like August and like it's super warm, dude, I I was always blown away when I first started wearing jetty cleats on rocks, like Mm -hmm. how effective that is. So even if you get like the stupid little strappy crampons, Like, tiny little studs makes a world of difference. You will not slip off the rocks. But, okay, what this brought to mind, because I knew right away, I was like, there's something about the current that's putting the feet there later. Mm -hmm. And I I fish a lot on the Niagara River out of Lewiston, New York. And that's about, I want to say, seven miles, six miles from Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls is upstream of there. And almost every jumper that jumps off of Niagara Falls to commit suicide, they Mm -hmm. pop up at the boat ramp in Lewiston. And it's just because of the way that they sink and the currents work that like 99% of the time if somebody jumps and they're they're going to be recovered it's cuz they pop up there in Lewiston. And that's what this made me think of. And yeah. every time I'm up there I'm like please don't let that happen. <laughs> I really don't want. Like find I really a body. I don't want to see that. No. But- I find that, I find that, I love that little stuff. It was a good, I
1: I very much enjoyed researching that one. We'll
3: we'll see what Phil has to say. Uh, Subsequently, that just put me in the mood for Cheddar Bay Biscuits, that story. (laughs) And uh, after we hear from Phil, maybe they have that or a version of it at the uh, bar we're going to go drinking at. Mm.
0: I am nothing if not basic, and therefore a little light body horror gets me going. So, Miles, you're the winner this week. Joe, you beat me to the punch with that Cheddar Bay Biscuits reference, so I had to make some tweaks to this next joke, and I hope it works out just as well. Okay, here we go. You don't have to tell me that a shrimp would gladly eat my eyeballs out of their sockets to get me to go hard on some scampi and Mountain Dew margaritas at my local Red Lobster. Okay, not great, but I'll workshop it.
1: Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. To Portland, Oregon, for that matter. This week, we're bringing the pub praise back to Montana. You might remember that our first ever That's My Bar segment shouted out the sip and dip in Great Falls and also paid homage to the joint's legendary Master of Ceremonies piano pat. Was that our first? Man, that feels like forever ago. It, it was a while ago and I don't I don't remember if it was the first, but it was in it was among the first. I, I know okay. that for sure
3: and we haven't had another Montana bar since then. We have not we
1: have oh, not okay. and and this is why I'm so excited because you know <laughs> to be totally honest, the sip and dip is like kind of an expected play. It's probably mm-hmm. Montana's most famous bar like it's been written up across the country blah 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 blah. but that's not the case for this week's watering hole. This week we've got Toby's Tavern, which might be the state's best kept secret.
3: Yeah, it, it's it's a good email. Have you have you
1: been to this place? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like that's why I say it that way because I haven't. I have to admit that I've I've never been there, and not only that, like I've never even heard of it. I, right. I had no idea existed until uh, listener Ryan Knapp sent a very, very persuasive email, and it convinced me. It's good, Like yeah. I'm I'm 100% convinced that I need to get my ass over to Northeast Montana for a drinking trip with a little fishing thrown in very, mm-hmm. very soon. Now, here's a point. Even though Ryan never said so in his email, I'm pretty damn sure that the dude's from Missoula because he made sure to work in a dig on <laughs> Bozeman when he was right in there. And, and the thing is, God love them, Missoulans... They they do two things really really well. They're they're so good at soaking their dreads in patchouli oil and throwing shade at Bozeman. <laughs> but I personally I don't I don't debase myself. I don't get into that whole petty rivalry thing. It's it's nothing but no. love for me.
3: No, clearly clearly you are well above such pettiness. Um, yeah, enjoy that Mizzoulins. Uh Back to this bar though. It's Ryan's moment, not yours. Um, it's true. Here's here's what he writes. He says. Located in Knoxon, Montana, up near the Idaho Panhandle on the Clark Fork River, you'll find Toby's Tavern. Toby is no longer with us. However, his daughter, Gail, keeps this eclectic establishment going with an infectious passion for this cultural landmark. To hear her tell it, she was married in the bar and has been there ever since, working six days a week. And she can easily fill an afternoon with very interesting stories. And Ryan says, ask me how I know that.
1: I, I want to, because I do too. Yeah, yeah I, I, the thing I, I this is a great email, but I really wish that Ryan had provided at least one example from right. Gail's repertoire of storytelling because you know they're good. Yes, right, and uh, you know, good on him. It's probably the better call because now I know I have to actually go there to get a taste. But the other thing I gotta I gotta say Ryan did well here is that is is it was a smart move leading with Gale. Mm-hmm. Right, because having the right character pouring drinks and wiping glasses is really what ultimately makes or breaks a great bar. Totally, totally. Right, like that—that that is the the core. That's the nucleus of a great bar is a great bartender. And it sounds like Toby's is, has got it going. It sounds like Gail is is exactly what you want in a bartender. But the space itself also sounds like the kind of spot where I, I want to listen to Gail tell stories. Mm-hmm. Here's how. Here's how Ryan describes the ambiance. On stepping through the door into this dark space, one is overwhelmed by the accumulation of photos, memorabilia, shoulder mounts, and big fish adorning any surface to which they can be affixed, up to and including the ceiling.
2: Bumper (laughs) stickers
1: on the coolers and glass are an entertaining time capsule into the contentious issues of the eras when they were put up. It's obvious this bar doesn't take itself too seriously, as evident by the copulating mountain lion <laughs> taxidermy set up on the jukebox.
3: And that right there. <laughs> didn't even have to read the email, just click the photo for that was the moment I knew for for sure we were gonna shout out this bar. Yeah. Because there's mm-hmm. there's there's mountain lions having sex over the jukebox. Somebody did that. Somebody took two <laughs> real mountain lions and skinned them and then made that. Uh, best of all, Ryan he he sent it. Like I said, he sent us a photo. Right, so head over to my Instagram account if you if you want to see this skin mount rendering uh, of of lion love on top of this jukebox <laughs> loaded with country classics. I'm sure uh, you might be wondering, however, if this really counts as a fishing bar. Well, Ryan covered that base too. He explained. While indulging in successive rounds of Just One More With My Wife, we met folks passing by on a road trip, couples on Harleys, enjoying the scenic Montana roads, locals just stopping in to say hello, and a gentleman who was in town working on his hunting cabin that gave me a hot tip on a mountain lake full of cutties in the nearby
1: cabinets. Boom. Beautiful. Fishing bar perfection. Nailed it. Ryan, well done on this submission. If you take me to your secret Cuddy Lake, I will buy all the (laughs) drinks at Toby's afterwards. I promise. And uh, if any of you out there have a bar that deserves a shout out on this show, take a cue from Ryan, give yourself a few minutes and write a compelling call out, then send it to bent at the meat eater.com.
3: Definitely put Toby's on your summer travel list. I think we'll all be traveling
1: more this summer. Done. Traveling right to Toby's. Yes. Going straight, (laughs) straight over to Toby's. That place sounds a hundred percent legit. Just a damn fine drinking and bullshitting establishment. No gimmicks necessary, which which actually makes it the polar opposite of the lure that Joe is going to tell you about in this week's End of the Line.
0: Uh, fishy, 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 fishy.
3: That's well, not loud enough, Bert. Roland Martin, Jimmy Houston, Bill Dance, Hank Parker. When most Americans think about bass fishing pioneers, those are the names that stand out. I mean, we've watched them on TV since we were little, grown up with them, and caught more hog bass because of them. But those four fellas wouldn't complete the Mount Rushmore of bass legends, should something so breathtaking ever be chiseled, because someone is missing, and that someone is Chuck Woolery. A lot of you grew up watching Chuck Woolery, too, albeit as the host of the Love Connection.
0: Now, here to tell us more about Love Connection is our host, Chuck Woolery
3: and for any of our young listeners that don't know what the love connection is it was tinder in front of a live studio audience which got to decide who you hooked up with
0: and this is charles he likes women with smooth skin long legs and loving eyes but
3: as it turns out while chuck spent 11 years connecting awkward people on a hokey game show that paved the way for shit like the bachelor and mtv's catfish off camera chuck was connecting with bass I learned this from bent listener Eric Hopkins, who made me hip to what could be the greatest bass lore you've never heard of, the Chuck Woolery series Moto Lore. Eric sent a photo of the Moto Lore, which he says a friend purchased some years ago at a Goodwill store. So taken aback was I that a lore, bearing the signature of the guy who played the band manager in the 1997 made-for-TV movie Hey Hey It's the Monkeys" had slipped past my radar I had to know more. Little did I know, though, I was throwing myself into one of fishing's greatest mysteries. Usually, the end of the line focuses on a lore's history, and every lore, even the TV famous ones like the Banjo Minnow and the Flying Lore, has a story that starts with one man's garage innovation. They have roots tied to real anglers, but not the moto lore. It seems to have just appeared out of the ether, like the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey. While there are several styles of moto lure, the one that pops up most often looks like a standard popper, but the line tie-eye on all these lures is connected to a string that extends when you twitch it in the water, thus winding up an internal mechanism that makes the tails kick and vibrate for a few seconds while the bait is at rest. It's simply modeled after a pull-string car or dinosaur or Pokemon you might buy for your kids. The lure's slogan? Continuous live action. In essence, you could say this was the precursor to today's robotic lures that are charged via USB. But Chuck Woolery and MotoLure in it together. How? Why? My investigation led to a DVD released in 2004 titled Bass Fishing, The Basics with Chuck Woolery. It's still available on Amazon for 15 bucks, and it has exactly five reviews, one of which reads, If you have never fished in your life, then you might get something out of this. But I was very disappointed. In a world where everything is online, clips from this DVD are suspiciously absent. In fact, all I could find was the DVD's shitty musical intro. But at least I had a timeline, assuming the Moto Lore endorsement came in the early 2000s to coincide with the DVD. But as mysteriously as the Moto Lore appeared, it seems higher powers try to erase it within just a few years. And you'll still find it on Amazon and a few other odd tackle sites, but it's it's out of stock or unavailable. The link to Chuck Woolery Bass Fishing dead. All that remains is a video posted by YouTube user Western Cowboys called Chuck Woolery Moto Lore Instructional. It's six and a half minutes long, filmed in a single unbroken take as Chuck, dressed in a new fishing vest and crisp camo hat, clearly pulled right from wardrobe, prattles on about the Moto Lore in a tone that says, I could give a shit about this, just pay me. I thought it was a real gimmicky kind of thing, didn't really understand it, didn't figure out what it would do, and I was kind of forced into using it. There's the sound click after
0: click after click after click. And it will do that for about seven to eight seconds.
3: If you want to see the Moto Chug in action, you can find that on YouTube too. It's just that you won't see it in action around the time it was released. In the handful of review videos I watched, the anglers make it known that this is something that's been sitting in their garage for years or that they have no recollection of how they even acquired it. Notably, however, Mike Tsai, better known as One Rod, One Reel Fishing on YouTube, used his to catch a few giant Maryland bass in a small pond, and over one million adoring fans watched him do it. To me, leaning on Chuck Woolery to sell your bass lures seems so absurd that I can't help but wonder if it's not absurd at all. Maybe the moto lore was too powerful. Maybe Chuck Woolery was silenced by the likes of Yamamoto and Striking to ensure his next-level bass knowledge couldn't reach the masses. And here's what Chuck has to say about that.
0: Frankly, they're missing
3: the point. Take it from my philosophical guru and life coach, Ice-T. You know, the right to bear arms is because that's the last form of defense against tyranny. Tyranny in the upper echelon of American bass icons. That's clearly at play here in stopping Chuck from taking his rightful seat at the right hand of Denny Brower.
1: And with that forgotten nugget, we wrap up our pop culture reference and fishing info scavenger hunt here's hoping you got a hold of all the hidden goodies including one book you should absolutely buy for all your snakehead obsessed friends another book you should absolutely not buy for your kids unless you want to deeply confuse them about food chains the perfect lure to put on your tinder profile and how to spend half a week's wages completely debasing yourself and ruining someone else's honeymoon
3: and if you buy the Snakehead book for your friend, actually give it to them. It would be good. <laughs> anyway, we are we are all about public service here. And if you're appreciating all that we give or maybe uh, frustrated about what we don't, send an email to bent at com. Also, remember, we're always looking out for your bar nominations, sale bin items, and uh, awkward fishing photos, among other things.
1: Those, those emails are the highlights of my week. No totally. joke. Totally. So. So, thank you to all of you who send us stuff. Even if it doesn't make the podcast, we appreciate it. We also appreciate seeing all the stuff you put up on the gram with the Degenerate Angler and Bent podcast hashtags.
3: Yeah, and I honestly can't wait to see what you guys put up about the uh, tawny, scrawny lion next week.